This is Aghast at the Past, 1892, a brief, lurid peek into the worst of our history. Well, I regret to report that, alas, our dates do not align anymore in the calendar. 1892 had 29 days in February, and 2021 only 28. So March 3rd, 1892 is Thursday, and of course a Wednesday for us. Ah, <sighs> well, it was good while it lasted. First up, a quick national headline. A major boxing match took place on the evening of March 2nd in New Orleans. The man favored to win was Bob Fitzsimmons, a British-born Australian who the year before had beat Jack Dempsey for his first world middleweight boxing title. He developed his powerful punching style from his earlier career as a blacksmith. His opponent was up-and-coming Irishman Peter Maher, who had won the 1888 Middleweight Championship of Ireland and the 1890 Heavyweight Championship of Ireland. The fight was held at the city's Olympic Club in front of a crowd of 5,000 fans. The purse was decent, $10,000, which would be about $300,000 for the winner in today's currency. The fight was competitive, without question, going 12 rounds. But spectators watched Fitzsimmons get the upper hand in each one of them, drawing blood round after round, pounding him so hard that his boxing glove had turned bright red. At the end of the 12th round, Mayer, after having taken two hard lefts to his mouth, staggered to his corner and threw in the towel. But Fitz was the epitome of a good sportsman and good-naturedly offered Mayer a pull from his flask of some mysterious red liquid and then congratulated him on his moxie. So the term inmate in late 19th century America was not generally referring to captives in prison, but instead patients in infirmaries. But it was also a word used to refer to prostitutes working in brothels. Even though they were not inmates in our modern-day understanding of the word. Most of these inmates were not being held against their will. Brothels in the 19th century were commonly referred to as resorts or houses of ill fame. Also to note, doctors would often visit these places, sometimes at the request of the madam, where they would offer venereal disease checks and treatment if required. And the following murder takes place in one of these resorts in Los Angeles, California. First, the original reporting of the story in the Los Angeles Herald, March 2nd, page 5. The headline, A Turk Loved Her. Hazel Layton Gets a Bullet in the Heart. The record of another horrible crime must be engrossed on the catalog of tragedies for which Los Angeles is unfortunately achieving an unenviable reputation. The life of shame of an abandoned woman was cut short in a brothel by the lover whom she had deserted, and the murderer then meted out to himself the same death 
to which he had condemned his victim. About three weeks ago, a handsome young woman became an inmate of the House of Ill Fame, kept by Ethel Wilson at the corner of New High and Marchessault Streets. The new arrival said she came from San Francisco, where she had also led a life of shame and gave her name as Hazel Layton. Her true name is said to have been Norma Layton. Hazel was beautiful of face, voluptuous of form, and of charming temperament, so that during the short period of her stay here, she became extremely popular among the sporting element. She received letters occasionally from San Francisco, but otherwise even her unfortunate companions knew nothing of her. Yesterday afternoon, at about three o'clock, a dark-skinned, black-haired, wild-eyed young fellow wandered about Upper Main Street near Marchessault, and with a marked foreign accent, inquired his way to the corner of New High and Marchessault. He was directed to the place by people on the street and rang the Wilson bell. When the door was open, he at once asked for Hazel. And when the girl made her appearance, they greeted each other very familiarly. She called him Henry while he addressed her as Annie. Hazel showed a little surprise when she first saw her caller. But the girl who witnessed the meeting only saw the couple a moment because they at once went to Hazel's room and locked the door behind them. Shortly afterward, Dr. Choate called at the house to make his regular health examination of all the inmates. All the women were seen by him except Hazel, who declared, when she was called, that there was a man with her who would not let her out of her room. The physician was about to depart when the girl made her appearance and said with a laugh that she had managed to get away after all. She was examined and the doctor left and Hazel returned to her room. The other inmates paid no further attention to the couple, but a little before four o'clock, they heard the girl singing. Her song was suddenly interrupted by a pistol shot. A scream and the sounds of a scuffle were next heard. Then two more shots, the opening of a window, and three more reports. On Marchessault Street, while the occupants of the house were paralyzed with fear, a horrible scene was being enacted. Passers-by and neighbors heard the shots and screams and stopped to look at the window whence the sounds emanated. They saw a struggle between a man and a woman. The man disappeared. The window was opened, and a woman threw herself out on the sloping roof of the wooden awning. She clutched the windowsill for an instant, then lost her hold, staggered three or four steps towards New High Street, while blood was gushing from a terrible wound in her chest. And then, with a sickening crash, she fell, head foremost, to the stone pavement below. There she lay, a bleeding, inanimate mass. She had been shot through the heart. Officers and physicians were summoned, 
and while the doctor examined the body of the girl, the policeman went upstairs to capture the murderer. The door was locked. Within, all was still. A policeman burst the lock. The door flew open, and before all lay the body of a stranger in a pool of blood. He had fired a bullet through his brain. The room was in terrible disorder, and the walls were full of bullet holes. The body of the girl was taken from the street into a vacant store on the first floor, and the coroner was notified of the tragedy. When he arrived and the body of the dead man was moved, two 38 caliber revolvers were found on the floor, one near each of his hands. Five shots had been fired from one of the weapons and one from the other. In the pockets of the dead man were found a number of unimportant circulars and timetables, a portrait of the murdered girl, and the following letter written with pencil on a single sheet of notepaper. Los Angeles, California, March 1st, 1892, 2.55 p.m. Please let my parents know it and oblige. Yours, Henry Avick. On another slip of paper was written in red crayon, the keys in my pocket belong to my boss. It was ascertained that Avick had never before been seen or heard of by the girls in Ethel Wilson's. He arrived here only yesterday morning from San Francisco, and after walking about the streets for several hours, found his way to the house where he performed his awful deed. It seems, therefore, that he had deliberately made up his mind to kill the girl and himself, and had come here for the express purpose of doing so. The most plausible story is that Avic became violently enamored of the dead girl while she was in a house of ill fame in San Francisco, that his persistent attentions became annoying, that he indulged in wild threats until the girl thought it better to leave, and that Avic, crazed with desire, decided to die after killing her rather than live without her. The two bodies were taken to the morgue and last evening were viewed by hundreds of the curious seekers after the sensational. So the next day, March 3rd, brought clearer details of the murder. Henry Avick, or Avakian, was a 24-year-old tailor from San Francisco of Turkish descent. One of his friends told a reporter from the Los Angeles Herald, the details of which were printed on page 5 of that issue, that Henry visited him just prior to leaving San Francisco. He told him that he planned to shoot a girl there. He handed a novel to his friend called A Mad Love by Bertha M. Clay. In it, he marked a series of passages, including, They found her cold and senseless on the ground. Love never exists without some tinge of jealousy. A mad love, a mad love, but the mill will never grind again with the waters that are past. And ominously, do you believe that marriages are known in heaven? Except that Henry Avick had crossed out heaven 
and scribbled the word hell in its place. They also interviewed a witness called Mrs. Rivera, who gave a graphic account of what she saw that day from street level. Here is that account. This is from, by the way, Mrs. Rivera's testimony in the coroner inquest. Mrs. Rivera, who saw the girl come out of the window and fall to the walk, said in her testimony that Hazel had opened the window and climbed out. She then clutched the sill for a moment, sunk to her knees, and began crawling backward to New High Street on the awning, with her eyes distended with terror, still fixed on the window. Blood was gushing from her mouth and chest, and she tried instinctively to staunch the flow with her handkerchief. When she reached the edge of the awning, she attempted to turn and look over the edge of it, lost her balance, and fell head foremost to the ground, striking with her face on the curbstone. Let's zip over to Pennsylvania now for a couple of stories from the Quaker State, published in Altoona's Morning Tribune, page one. First, a horrible death. Pittsburgh, PA, March 2nd. Edward Nordstrom, a Swede, employed as a roller at the National Rolling Mill, McKeesport, Pennsylvania, was drawn through the rolls this morning and crushed to death. When his remains were pulled out, they were crushed out of all resemblance to a human body. Same paper, same page. The headline, A Happy Murderer. Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, March 2nd. Charles Wall, who murdered his wife on July 25th last, and who is to pay the penalty for the crime at Tonkinock, on the 8th of this month, is being closely watched by a guard of deputy sheriffs. He declared a day or two ago that he would not be the first man to be hanged in Wyoming County, and fears are entertained that he might commit suicide. Since he has been convicted, he has invented a story that his wife, on the day of the murder, had placed Paris Green as a quick aside, Paris Green was a dye created by mixing copper with arsenic, which resulted in a brighter and longer-lasting green color than others on the market. It was used in the last half of the 19th century in fabric, wallpaper, food packaging, and even candy and medicine. As you might imagine, it caused many, many deaths before doctors and scientists finally began connecting the dots. Interestingly, many theorize that later 20th century cartoons, which used green to denote poison, was a direct result of the Paris Green arsenic scare. Anyway, back to the story. On the day of the murder, he claimed she had placed Paris Green in some pudding that he ate, which made him crazy, and he did not know what he had been doing. Today, the condemned man was feeling good. He danced, seemed full of joy, and spent several hours in singing. He says if the people want him to hang, he will go to the scaffold like a hero 
and hang for all he is worth. He also made a request that on the morning of the hanging, the sheriff would allow him to drink a pint of gin just before going off. This story piqued my curiosity. I just had to learn more about the murder of his wife that prior July. So we're going to travel back even farther in time now to visit an article from the Evening Leader, Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, Monday evening, July 27, 1891, page 1. The headline? Killed his young wife. The murder of Mrs. Julia Wall by her jealous husband at Center Moreland, Wyoming County, on Saturday, has agitated the entire region thereabouts. And if the sheriff will let him visit the scene of his crime, his trial will never cost the county anything. Julia Smith was a plump, black-eyed, and pretty 17-year-old country girl when Charles Wall married her two months ago. And while she was noted as a lover of gay company and fond of the country dances of the neighborhood, he was well aware of this before he asked her hand in wedlock. On last Thursday, he had a quarrel with her, alleging undue intimacy upon her part with Butler Wall and others. This she denied, and he went off and she went home on Friday morning, but they made up, and he took her up to Center Moreland and bought her a new pair of shoes and a new dress. She went to a neighbor, David Burlews, to make up the dress, and he went back to town. At night, he came home drunk, and not finding his wife there, went over to Burlews, his wife hiding from him. He was told she was not there, but seeing her unfinished dress lying on the chair, said to Mrs. Burlew that she was a liar. He then cut the dress into shreds, as he did the new shoes. After he had gone, the young wife left and went to the home of her father. Wall went to his home and, taking the axe from the woodpile, broke the stove, the chairs, and clock, and ripped the clothes, scattered the flour and meal on the road, and went away. On Saturday morning, he appeared at the home of his wife's parents and found her in bed with Charity Smith, her sister. He was refused admission, but took a stone and broke in the bedroom door. Walking to the bedside, he raised his wife's chin with one hand and made a thrust with a knife at her throat, but his arm was caught by Miss Smith although the knife cut his wife in the left arm. In the row that followed, Mrs. Smith and Charity received slight cuts from the knife. He seemed to grow more pacified, however, and finally gave his wife the key to the house and told her to go down and look after the chickens. The other things down there you will find no good, he said. She went to the house, in company with her father and Hal Barton, the latter being one of the men the husband was jealous of. Wall met them as they came out of the cellar and at once 
raised a double-bitted axe, which he held as if to strike. They started to run. Barton, coward that he was, started for Northmoreland and ran a mile without stopping. Her father ran to a house nearby, and she started through the grass, but caught her foot and fell, and he caught up to her. She raised herself on her knees and cried, For God's sake, Charlie, don't kill me. He struck, sinking the sharp edge of the axe into her skull. He walked away a short distance and then returned to strike her again. From the scene of the crime, Wall walked to a squire's office and gave himself up. The wife was subsequently carried to her father's home where she died. Wall was brought to the jail in this city and locked up. This was done because the Wyoming County Prison is undergoing repairs. Wall does not bear the best of reputations, and the wan and emaciated appearance of his once comely wife, as she lies in the home of her father, bear testimony to a life of worry and abuse. He is 29 years of age and is short and stout, with a red mustache and is rather intelligent in appearance. On Saturday night, the wildest excitement prevailed in Tonkanak over the affair, and open threats of lynching were made. Wyoming County has never had a hanging, but it is now believed the first will soon be added to its credit. The only man ever convicted of murder in the first degree escaped and was never recaptured. This crime was committed within 1,500 feet of the Luzerne County line and, according to the law, could be tried in either county. Well, we know the ultimate result. He would be tried and convicted of murder, and as of March 3rd, he sits in prison to await his execution. Let's finish today's episode by heading to America's heartland, Hope, Kansas, and the Dispatch Herald, page 2. Lynched. Marshfield, Missouri, February 28th. Richard Cullen, the young man arrested, charged with the murder of the foster child of Cullen's stepfather, Henry Shaw was taken from the jail by an armed mob at 10 o'clock last night and hanged to a telegraph pole. Last Tuesday night, the body of a four-year-old boy was found in an old well near the residence of Henry Shaw. The child was a waif, having been found on the doorstep of a prominent citizen four years ago. It was then two weeks old and was adopted by Shaw at that time, and he has reared it and cared for it as his own. Monday night, Mrs. Shaw put the boy to bed in a room where Richard Cullen, Shaw's stepson, slept. Tuesday morning, the child was missing. Shaw immediately gave the alarm, and a search was commenced. Suspicion pointed to Cullen, who had been jealous of the wave because he believed his stepfather intended to leave his property to him. 
and it was believed the boy had been murdered. About 5 o'clock Tuesday evening, someone thought of the old well near Shaw's place, and in a short time, the body of the little innocent was brought out. A coupling pin was fastened to the neck of the body, and the examination by physicians showed that the boy had been thrown into the well while yet alive. An inquest was commenced that night and continued next day. In the course of the investigation, tracks leading from the Shaw house to the well were discovered. Cullen wore a peculiar pair of hobnail shoes, and these shoes, it was found, fitted the tracks exactly, conclusively proving that he was the guilty man. He and his mother were both held for the murder and committed to jail. The general indignation, which was at first felt, has grown stronger and stronger as each day passed until it found expression in the public revenge of last night. Cullen was a reckless youth of 22 and had recently returned from the West. This ends another episode of A Guest at the Past, 1892. I'm Eric Rivenis, and I will talk to you again very soon.